0: Fontenelle. this is the Schweb, the secret history of western esotericism podcast online at schwep.net and today we are speaking on the subject of Yamblicus and theurgy with the distinguished professor john finnamore from the university of iowa who has in a very long career been editing Yamblicus, writing about Iamblichus, thinking about Iamblichus, publishing on Yamblicus, and in short knows a thing or two about the aforementioned Iamblichus. john thanks so much for coming on the podcast Thank you for having me. So we've introduced Iamblichus, the great thinker, a philosopher, but certainly also a religious thinker of some sort or another. And in this work of his that survives, the the response to Porphyry, as I guess we're now calling it, formerly known as De Mysteriis Aegyptiorum on the Mysteries of the Egyptians, um, a name that was given to it by Marsilio Ficino. This work, of all the works of Iamblichus that could have survived pretty much in toto, this is a weird one, but it does survive. And in it, he outlines a whole lot about something called theurgy. Uh, so the first question I have for you is, what is theurgy for Iamblichus? If, if you can come up with a description or even approaching a definition, it would be very, very helpful. I can give that a try, at least.
1: So what we've got is some sort of sacred rite that's imagined by Iamblichus that among other things separates our souls from our bodies and raises them from this level to higher, to the moon, to the visible gods, to the stars and beyond to the intellect and maybe even to the one, though he says that happens rarely and only late in life. So it's some ritual that allows that to happen. When he talks about it in, in book three of the Day Mysteries, and he has a, a rite going on, He says that there is a uh, theurgic priest, the leader of the god, the agagon, something like that, the Agagos, I guess, in Greek, that leads somehow the god, but not the god, which I'll explain in a minute, to the um, ethereal vehicle of the person that is the receiver, the kemenos. So we've got a priest in residence, that's a philosopher, priest. It's a theurgist, we've got the person that is being involved in it that has the activated vehicle and we've got an audience around because so he talks about them being able to see the light descending from the gods and maybe encircling the person that we're having as the receptor so there's some sort of rite that takes place with an audience probably near his school I always think of it as a bunch of PhD students but that's just me so <laughs> they sort of hang around together and do this and that um, is what the theurgy seems to
0: be. Now, that's a beautifully concrete picture you've painted. This reminds me and many interpreters of stuff we find in Greek magical papyri. And I'm sure mm-hmm. that will come back again and again in this conversation. But it's, and it also reminds me, Ceteris Parabus, a little bit of the incident where the Egyptian priest calls Plotinus's guardian Daimon to appearance in the temple of isis now it seems to be that only the priest can see the daimon right it does Mm -hmm. you don't get the impression from porphyry that everyone saw it and went whoa there it is it's just the priest (laughs) and the priest sort of says well guess what it's a god what do these parallels tell us
1: i'm thinking there's slightly two different things okay that uh having a, a, a priest determine whether your personal demon is just a daimon or might be something greater than a god. That seems to be a specific right about something else. That doesn't seem to be what the means by theurgy. Theurgy, as he's making the point, has to do with the gods coming to us, not personally, which is impossible in Platonism, but via light. So it's the illumination of the gods and the leading of light, he calls it in Greek. Right, So So that would be critical to to this, and I don't see that happening necessarily in the Plotinus passage.
0: Right. If we wanted to talk, I guess, generally about rituals of apparition, um, Mm -hmm. we might—well, we'll we'll, we'll get back to the apparition parts in De Mysterious, because that stuff's fascinating, but maybe we want to talk about that as something different from theurgy proper. So theurgy is separating the soul from the body. That's Mm -hmm. its aim, which, funnily enough, is the aim of philosophy in Plato's phido you know
1: yeah absolutely. and
0: it's the aim of philosophy for plotinus and for porphyry so they all agree that we need to separate the soul from the body but they have obviously a very different take on how to go about doing that about it exactly
1: with plotinus right you can do it in, by yourself in your basement there's no problem anybody studies philosophy figures out how to do that contacts the gods and then raises himself up you don't need any go-between you don't need a special priest. You don't need a special rite. Um, Porphyry falls in the middle somewhere between that and the Amblichus, where you have this system that I just spoke of.
0: Right. Now, when we last met Theurgy, it was in the context of the Chaldean oracles, yeah. earlier than Amblichus, second century probably. People have often thought that maybe there's some echoes of the oracles in Plotinus, but it's all very inconclusive. But with Porphyry, we know he's, he's reading these, these texts. Mm-hmm, right. And everyone kind of agrees in the, I would say, later Platonism, from at least Porphyry onwards, that these texts are inspired oracles from the gods. They're a good place to look for wisdom about the soul and about the ascent of the soul, which is the same thing as separating yes. the soul from the body. How much do you think Iamblichus is going to the Chaldean oracles for his theurgy?
1: I think that as part of I remember he wrote, what, 30 books or more on the Chaldean oracles himself, interpreting them. So he knows them, even though we don't have those in our hands anymore. And I think that since the word theurgy appears there, maybe for the first time, Mm. uh, that's where he's getting the idea from. That's not saying that whatever the Chaldeans were doing is the same theurgy that Yamblichus was doing, because Platonists had their own way of looking at things. And, uh, you know, 100, 150 years have passed in between the two. But he, I think he's reinterpreting and using that ritual and making it his own.
0: Okay. Here's another question, and this might be an irresponsible question. Did you The best kind. The, well, I'm glad you feel that way because I feel also they're the best kind. When you're asking someone who's very informed about a subject, you ask an irresponsible mm-hmm. question. You bracket it as such. You say, this is irresponsible, but what do you really think? Uh, you, you get sometimes the most interesting an- answers. So here's an irresponsible question for you, John Finnamore. Sarah Isles Johnson described theurgy as a late antique religion. And when I first read that, I went, hang on a minute, religion, that doesn't seem to fit right. But then I thought, well, okay, new religious movement, maybe something like that. It's definitely religious, whatever it is. Okay, I'll buy that. So do you think Yamlikus is sort of inheriting ritual practices from a bunch of people who are doing this stuff in Syria, presumably? A. Or yeah. B. He's just made this up you know he's riffing on the i mean obviously the, the idea of theurgy is around already the idea that you right. can use ritual to separate the soul from the body is around already because that's seemingly what the chaldean oracles were talking about and especially right. when Proclus's testimony that there are secret chaldean words that cause the soul to separate from the body and stuff like this you think okay right that's definitely going on in the oracles but in terms of the details in terms of the ritual practice and stuff like this is this iamblichus uh, as religious innovator kind of coming up with a new thing or is he part of a theurgic movement that he's sort of been taught by someone what do you reckon i'm tempted to say both why not both why not both uh, but i think that you know,
1: theurgy is is a ritual within a religious context that's got to be true well there's a religion itself is another matter and the religious context is one of uh, ascent ritual to the gods that seems to be in play in the in the chaldean oracles in Porphyry and in the and, and certainly after Amplicus as well. So it's part of a tradition. It's not new. Um, it's based, I mean it's all over Greece and, and the Roman worlds, but it's it's based really in that area uh, of, of Syria and such that the Chaldean Oracles, Numinius and the Ambulus occupy. And mm. in some way that, you know, the Emperor Elagabalus too. So right. all that's kind of tied together with that bell worship, or ball, whichever way you spell it nowadays, as the god in the temple there. Iamblichus has expanded that, right? He's going, okay, I, that's partly what's going on. This is a religious ritual that I accept, but it has to fit more broadly into my new platonic scheme.
0: Right. Okay. So, so if he is an innovator, it might be t- mm-hmm. in the metaphysics that we want to look rather than in the ritual side of things.
1: I think so. I think he's. uh, once you've got a new, or um, he wouldn't call it new, obviously, once you've got the Platonic system down, he would say, once you understand Plato properly, then this ritual fits in 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 the way that I'm about to describe. Exactly.
0: Cool. Now, I wanted to ask you about salvation in Mm Yamblichus, this idea. How, because as with many religious thinkers of this period, notably Christianity, there's this... In the, the grand scheme of things, new concern with salvation of the soul. So, what? How does that play out in Iamblichus? Hmm.
1: That's true, and he does have. He talks about this again. I think Book Ten of the De Mysteries So this is the road to salvation, and salvation is for us, for him, um, getting our souls out of our bodies and reattaching. I think basically to intellect is, is the, yeah. the goal. And one would even be better, but intellect, I think, is the main goal. So that is a salvation for us. Going back to that theurgical ritual that I was describing, right, where there's a receptor or anything, that's one way that it's done. And that way, you, and what he's talking about there is a way of divination. So it's got a very narrow scheme. Right. But he applies that too to ascent of the soul elsewhere, including in the Platonic commentaries that we have fragments of, where the soul of the theurgist who can do the ritual with other people around and other help, can raise his own soul higher than he can raise, you know, some other person who's an initiate that isn't fully a philosopher yet. So if you're a theurgist, then you make your soul ascend to the gods first, and as I said before, and then when you meet together with the intellect, if we can talk that way, where your mind melds with the intellect's mind, Melt. because before we were talking about ethereal rays attaching to the ethereal vehicle, and that gets you through the cosmos. But once you get beyond that, uh, as I imagine it, the soul sitting with its, um, its star god, as described in the Timaeus of Plato. Yeah. And then you're sort of in the realm of the Phaedrus. Like he ties all this together so neatly. In the realm of the Phaedrus, where you're in that vehicle looking outside the cosmos at the world of forms and that's the way he imagines us looking outside at the intellect and at that moment when the intellect takes over us so that our soul vehicle is brought together with his mind the images that we get then are non-material images clearly they're not even they're they're ethereal only in the sense that they're within us but they're about something even higher and greater and that's what gives us salvation that ability at that point to be able to think intellectually or intelligibly.
0: Now, one thing about Iamblichus that is in the history of ideas well-known, insofar as anything about Iamblichus is well-known in the history of ideas, Mm -hmm. is that he, while Porphyry may or may not waffle on the issue, he says, Plotinus is wrong about the undescended self. Plotinus says... We're in the noose now, we're in the uh, Huperanios topos of yeah, the Phydrus yeah. all the time, and our self that's down here embodied is kind of like a little toe that we stick down into the water, but the rest of us remains up there. Yamblocus says, no, that's absolutely wrong. Can you explain Yamblocus's thinking here, and also mm-hmm. irresponsibly reflect on why you think Iambluchus thinks this is wrong? Because this is something I wonder about a lot.
1: Mm -hmm. Where to start? The Phaedrus, I suppose. Um, The Phaedrus descent of the soul, right, is the soul descending from above to below. There's nothing Mm. about it staying above. When it's down here, it's stuck down here, and we have to get ourselves back up again. Mm. I think that's sort of the base of the Amblykean theory. Like, have you been talking about connecting and not connecting? The other thing is the soul itself is interesting in the Amblykean, right? Because... It does live two lives and it necessarily has to for him. And that comes from the Timaeus, where the soul has to descend and in part, I guess, from the Republic and the cave analogy, right. where the philosopher must descend into the cave again. So it has to exist on two levels. So that even when we're down here, we wanna be up there, but when we're up there in come communion with the intellect, we know it's temporary, that we're not gonna stay there. We're gonna to have to come back down again. Yeah. So that up and down is constant and part of his philosophy and that makes the soul much more dynamic in a way than it is in plotinus yeah you just have to reflect and find this makes it harder to seek harder to get there and impossible to maintain for you know more than much whatever time is
0: in the realm of intellect yeah eternity (laughs) but the the thing about um plotinus is he does say you know i've been there i've lit the very the famous often going into myself passage, passage uh, mm-hmm. I do that. I, I establish myself in the noose, even in the highest aspect of noose, where it's sort of bordering on ultimate simplicity. And then I find myself back here in the body, and I wonder what the hell just happened. I guess maybe Iamblichus is answering the question, well, I, I can tell you what just happened. Like, this is your part in part, this is your home. But I, so here's my irresponsible question for you. Like, why mm-hmm. does Iamblichus think this way? It's, it, I mean, you could also ask the question, you could turn it back on me and say, why does Plotinus think that way? But well, why does the Amplicus think this way? I guess way? that's true. This is the debate, right? Yeah. Who is right in, the, in this way of
1: describing something that they both have undergone, this metaphysical experience that's, you know, very difficult to put into words? Mm. And Plotinus perceives it one way, and he'll write about it that way, and the Amplicus perceives it another way. And both of them, I think, are going to Platonic texts to defend their way of handling it. Right. Yeah, and so that's why I brought the Phaedrus in right away because this is the problem.
0: Right? Yeah, if
1: the Phaedrus says this, it's got to be true. Plotinus can't be right. Plotinus, you know, if you were around, would say, "No, no, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying about the Phaedrus." But yeah. he's not there. Just Yamblicus talking at yeah, this point, I mean, so he wins the argument. Yamb-
0: in in the Phaedrus department, Yamb- Plotinus reads more against the grain than Yamblicus does because mm-hmm. the soul chariots mm-hmm. in the Phaedrus, which aren't the gods, but are humans. Right. They, they can stick their head out through the final sphere and kind of view the, the realm of forms if that's what it is um, mm-hmm. temporarily but then they always kind of sink back down and the only way for Plotinus to get that result from the Phaedrus is to just say that the gods that were mentioned that kind of go up there and have feasts and just chill out up there mm-hmm. those are actually human souls of a very like elevated standing and if you read it that's that way then it, it. Then it yeah, works yeah. fine but otherwise mm-hmm. Plotinus is just going way beyond Plato in his ambition for the human self and Yamluchus mm-hmm. is sticking much closer to Plato in this in the literal surface meaning, in the sense that Plato's quite skeptical about our abilities to attain to this exalted state in a kind of permanent way, right? Mm-hmm. Or similarly, in in the Republic where Socrates is laying out this unbelievably stringent way of life for the philosophers. Like if they could exist, which they can't even exist in real life, they would have to do forty years of maths and astronomy and da-da-da-da-da. Before they could even start dealing with the, the form of the good, right? So I like it. And that puts the whole narrative that Iamblichus is anti-rationalist and, a, you know, betrayal of the, um, the true Greek uh, rationalist tradition and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that, you know, in a way, he's being much more down to earth than a Plotinus here. Um, he's, he's hewing closer to the Platonic line, it seems to me. Except for all the Mm -hmm. ritual stuff. Now, um, (laughs) let's talk a little bit about the form that our information about Jan theurgic school, his theurgic uh, practice and theory comes in. It comes in the form of a, a pseudonymous epistle from a mighty wise man from Egypt in response to a work by Porphyry. A series of questions about theurgy, which unfortunately doesn't survive. Mm-hmm. So that is the letter to Anibo, and Iamblichus replies with the responses of Abamon. So it's not even Anibo responding to Porphyry; it's a different Egyptian wise man.
1: That's right, a, a higher up in the authority category. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. So he's he's
0: like <laughs> uh, Anibo doing? told me what about I'm your thinking? Anibo told me about your your awkward <laughs> questions, and he he just said you know what, Master, you better answer these because you're the man. Um, mm-hmm. What can you say about this, this format, this epistolary public, epistolary dialogue format that's taking place between two philosophers who know each other, but neither of them is kind of using their real names and stuff like this?
1: Yeah, it, it is. I think John Dillon said that, that was his reason for thinking that this was an early work of the Amplicus that it strikes him that doing it this way is it something a young man would do and an older man wouldn't? And he might be right about that. But uh, it's interesting because in a way, it's like a platonic dialogue. You've got Socrates' character who knows all the answers and is helping you out as you go along, and sort of the younger scholar that doesn't have it quite right yet and try to guide him along. But it also has that real force of, I'm an authority figure and here's what's right. And here's where you're missing the mark. And he'll, he'll be very explicit about that. When Porphyry says something like, you can make demons from ghosts, excuse me, from smoke or from material stuff, my fault. And Yama goes, you just don't understand this at all, do you? And you goes, going run the whole thing. You can't do that. If somebody is a creator, of something else. It's something less than himself, not something better than himself. Right. And then he straightens Porphyry out that way. So that, that approach is kind of platonic dialogue, kind of knowing speaker, but also in a way of saying that, you know, think through this a little more, I've thought about this much more than you have, and I've got it right.
0: You know, that's especially interesting because Porphyry is probably at least a little bit Jan Blukes elder, and mm-hmm. seems to have been his teacher.
1: Um, might have been, um, it's, it's um, oh, the guy that wrote the uh, biography of the the philosophers, including
0: Iamblichus, His name right now is escaping me. Good old Eunapius or Eunapius.
1: Eunapius, thank you. He says that, but, you know, he's not the most trustworthy person,
0: so we're not sure if there were correspondence response to student and pupil.
1: They knew each other
0: somehow, I think it's safe to say. Incidentally. Oh, definitely, yes. Do you think the Iamblichus referred to in the life of Plotinus, in a little passing reference, is our Iamblichus? Oh, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Everyone forgets about that including me, but yeah. Cuz how many Yambliki can there how be many, running around? Can,
1: you wonder how many there can be, right? Although there's also Julian's letters to another Amlicus, so. Mm. So it might, you know, it might have been a common name in Syria.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So no theory there, fair enough. Safe. No theory there.
1: I'm not going to go that. Route. I'm not yeah. going to go down that. Path. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, what other differences? does he have with porphyry if you can call them to mind right now like what are the big um things that yamblichus says or sorry abamon says to porphyry this is what you've got wrong and it doesn't i don't mean for you to go point by point but if you can just get the the general kind of gist of why porphyry needs to be schooled on theurgy.
1: yeah the schooling seems to be about again metaphysics right how the system is set up and so anytime he's making a claim about um, how to get to the gods or what's sort of the religious thing to do or anything like that, Amplicas will take him back to the system and say, this is the way the system works. These are the higher, these are the lower, this is the way the gods interact with us. And that's the way he'll answer them. So when he says, you know, how do you how does the Delphic Oracle tell the future? Isn't it just from inhaling fumes or whatever it is and you're getting something from material objects and it, it how trustworthy is that and we'll so, say well no no you're making a mistake about that it's not the material that's there it's the god's essence there in the ethereal rays that fall on delphi that make delphi ethereal in the same way as the gods and then you the priestess picks it up from that so there's a routine there's a definite path to follow and whenever you do it you're going to come to the truth but when you try to waylay it and say no it's all material stuff that's doing it that's wrong in the same way that making demons out of smoke is wrong or any of the other things he talks
0: about Mm. you can see why this is a problem for porphyry coming from the school of Plotinus because well, it's a problem for any Platonist really how Mm -hmm. does stuff down here um, participate in or Get influenced by or otherwise, as it were, touch the stuff up there, which is immaterial, Mm -hmm. which is eternal, which doesn't change, which um, and and this this by stuff up there in the context of Porphyry and Yambluckus' debate, we're talking about noetic gods, right? Like Mm -hmm. eternal beings that exist totally beyond and totally transcendent of all this kind of scrabbling and changing and transmuting that's going on down in the cosmos. How does their influence come down to us, right? And Yamblicos right. has really strong and interesting, and I think innovative ideas here.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about
0: that. And
1: that thing brings us back to theurgy and the idea of the illumination of the gods, mm. because their essence and power, which is really just as our essence and power is immaterial, our souls or our rational souls are immaterial their being is immaterial and the intellect has no matter whatsoever. So that has to be transferred, that stuff that is completely immaterial has to be transferred from a higher realm to a lower realm, and how do you do that? And once again, it's, you, know, you create more intermediate entities to help pass it along like a football down the line. So the essence of the intellect, which is immediately available to a visible God, any of the planets say, Mm -hmm. they have no trouble. They don't have a body that interferes. Their ethereal vehicle gives them no trouble at all. And they immediately have it. They can pass that along to us, as it were, in an electrical line that is actually made up of ether. Right. Their rays bring the thing down. We've got an ethereal receptor, a radio that can pick up their waves as our ethereal vehicle. And then we can get those messages that way. We don't get them clearly until we do theurgy. Right. That's the way they come
0: to us. So following the radio metaphor, which I often think is the best modern technological metaphor for kind of envisioning this stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, right. You need to adjust the, the set really carefully. Um, and that, mm-hmm. presumably for Yamblichus, that's not only doing the right rituals and stuff, but also having practiced the virtues and uh, yes, purified your... Yeah, he talks about
1: on. purifying the vehicle. That's exactly what he has in mind, right? That we've got to get it into shape. And part of that is the way we act on a day-to-day basis, being good human beings. And another that is being receptive to what the gods are sending us and, and doing the right ritual to get there.
0: Yeah, yeah. that hand so works hand in hand. All of those things make our radio receive better and clearer mm-hmm. and less static and so on and so forth. And what we get, though, from the gods, it seems to me is essentially they're opening up the door to come see them. So they're like mm-hmm. reaching down to get us in Iamblichus and then pulling right. us up. While for Plotinus yeah. it's kind of the opposite in a way. We're we're just stopping our own obsession with the stuff down here so that okay. it stops attracting us and we then we just naturally snap back to our true noetic home where we were right. anyway. Where we never left anyway. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's what makes it so easy in platinus.
1: We're there and we don't realize it. Mm, but it's not easy,
0: is it? I mean, it, <laughs> well, it still isn't easy. It's only easy once you realize that. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Thank you very much for, for laying that out. We have our, let's say, our theurgic ritual for separating the body mm-hmm. from soul. Is, do you think this is something that, they, that you do a lot? You keep doing it over and over to kind of...
1: Yes, I do. I think also um, it's necessary, if I understand them correctly, in order to have contact with the intellect which we can only do for a certain amount of time in our lives, right? Say a half hour, I don't know what it is, (laughs) but that's all you get. Then you got to fall back into your body and then you can have to go back up again. But to get back up again, you can't do what Plotinus says and just go. You need the ritual to do it again, even though you might be a theurgist yourself. So I think it's the kind of thing you do over and over again. I should also say that it's incremental that, you know, each of us has to start with kind of a lower form of theurgy that's more material Right. Offering material things to certain gods, maybe having daimons and heroes helping us get along, and eventually, as we get better and better—if we can get better and better, because not all of us can—then you know we can move on to the gods themselves, and the rituals become less material and more noetic.
0: Yeah, you bring up something that is very fascinating about Iamblichus, which is not only the proliferation of levels and energeiae and dunamis at the level of intellect. So his intellect is this very structured mm-hmm. realm or being or God or whatever, full of other gods and forms and God knows what all. Right. And it's noetic and it's noeric and, you know, yep. etc. So doing what Plotinus said, the Gnostics are doing and it's bad, you know, dividing the mm-hmm. intellect up into this incredibly complex Pleroma type place. Mm -hmm. But also here in the cosmos, we have elaborate hierarchies of divine entities, including the heroes, including the angels, which I guess for Assyrian are just a a natural. I mean, forget about Christianity for a minute, but just they're a natural go-to sub-god beneath the supreme Mm -hmm. god, right? Because all all the Semitic religions have something like angels, messengers. Daimones, of course. So... His universe, his cosmos rather, the material cosmos, is really heaving mm. with invisible gods, but they're not always invisible and this is what I wanted to talk to you about this yeah. there is this very fascinating reference in the de Mysteries, where he talks about a different kind of ritual, um, mm. the something like an apparition ritual, where you can summon these different different types of entity and they're going to appear and you're going to be able to see them. Sometimes they're going to be smoky. Sometimes they're going to be kind of a smoky fire. Sometimes they're going to be just pure light depending on the category. And you can actually Mm -hmm. do a taxonomy of what has appeared by what it looks like. What do you make of all that stuff?
1: (laughs) That's that's all that starts happening in books one and two, right? Where it says, how do you know what you've contacted? because Porphy's kind of worried about this. You know, what have yeah. we got here? All, this is, there's certain signs of what's going on now. Angels are at the top, so they're gonna be more pure, closer to what gods are like, but a little bit different, not quite as clear. And then you know, work your way down to Daimones, and they're, they're a little more hazy, more problematic, and heroes less than that, and finally we get down to us, it's really murky. So that's the way you can tell where you are in a sacred service, which is very important, right? Because mm. remember, again, I'll go back to book three just quickly for a minute. If you've got a Thayer just from the Yellow Pages that isn't very good, and you didn't realize you were hiring a bad just, you might accidentally contact, instead of a god, an evil demon. Right. Then you're really screwed, right? Yeah. Everything's going to go wrong. So you've got to be able to recognize them.
0: And That's Porphyry is really worried demons. about these evil demons, as we've seen in our in our coverage of Porphyry. He's mm-hmm. seemingly, and one assumes he gets this from, I don't we don't know where he gets it from, but my guess would be from at least partly from his youth growing up in, in Syria, you know, like just belief, folk belief in nasty demons that can mess you up, which are a real, a real part of traditional belief in that area going way back to Mesopotamia yeah. or back to the Bronze Age. And he talks about, you know, in the um, De Abstinentia that there are these evil daimonites that will pretend to be gods and basically mm-hmm. get you to do sacrifices and stuff, but they just want to get the kind of juice from the sacrifice themselves so it's, right. it's not unlike the Christian or some Christian critiques of uh, polytheist religious practice. Like, it's really evil demons that are pretending to be gods. Yes. Um, now, how much how much uh, interest does Jamblicka show in these evil daimones?
1: He doesn't bring them up all the time. And there's some debate among us modern scholars about whether he believes in evil demons at all. What, right. what, are, the, what are the category of evil demons? Maybe there's something he calls that, but aren't demons per se.
0: Right, like a lower entity from a daimon. Yeah, Right.
1: so and that's one possibility. But if, if they are evil demons, they're not unusual to find in Platonism, right? Because Apuleius has a thing on demonology where he puts them in. Uh, Plutarch has, does the same thing. So they're part and parcel of the Platonic tradition. So he can make use of them if he wanted to. It doesn't have to be just Eastern stuff. It can be also Platonic. Yeah.
0: Thank you for for balancing my my intemperate remarks about Porphyry. I just feel like Porphyry shows in the surviving fragments such a kind of, I I almost want to say, obsession with these evil Mm -hmm. daimones that you feel like there's something more than just school Platonism going on. Like he Mm -hmm. really has a kind of gut fear of evil daimones and if you look for really? that in well you find that in all kinds of in all kinds of cultural traditions but it seems to be very strong in the the near east and you know we see it going right back to sumer where you have these sort of like protective tablets against these named evil prowling creatures that come and mess with you you know but yambukwa seems remarkably positive like he's not so concerned with that evil stuff he's seemingly his vibe is really about the goodness of the gods and the gods like just emphasizing the goodness and this kind of increasing scale of goodness as you go up and this sort of thing
1: yeah yeah because that's part of the chain right so the higher up you go the better chance you have of being good too and i think that that's really what he's interested in in theurgy i mean this is an, his example is this is where it goes off the rails, if you mind up with an evil demon. So that's theurgy mishandled, gone wrong. When it works right, you don't have to worry about that. He says whenever the gods are present, it's like their light wipes out all the darkness. There is no there is no evil left anywhere.
0: Hmm. Anywhere. So e- for him the theurgy has to be pure to be to be theurgy. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about about the, the nachleben of Jan Bluchus's ideas, specifically on theurgy, in mm-hmm. later Platonist thought. Obviously, the nachleben becomes massive and ramified when he gets translated into Latin and Christians in the Renaissance start thinking about theurgy in Christian terms. Um, and also... Clearly, with the pseudo Dionysius, we, we already see. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Theur- we have to see a Christianized theurgy, but I think more through the medium of Proclus than through Iamblichus directly. Mm-hmm. But what about Proclus and Damascius and those guys? What do they make of this uh, teaching and practice? Yeah, they,
1: they still seem to have a belief in theurgy. But again, we don't have a lot of descriptions, so I can't say, like, it's so much like Amblic is this way and so much like unlike him in another, and I really miss that. There's a couple passages in Proclus uh, where he'll he'll talk about rituals. There's one where he's talking about um, Achilles and the the burial of Patroclus and how that's handled as if that were some sort of sacred rite. And there's another one, I, forget, I think that might be in the Republic commentary, uh, where um, he has a, a a human being buried up to his head only his head is showing, which is, where, of course, where the rational soul is. Yeah. And the light hits it, and that's what makes the ascent happen. But outside of those two passages and that one from the Myster- De Mysterious that I talked about earlier, we don't have any kind of description of them, so it's very hard to compare
0: the two. Yeah. The, or the three or the four. <laughs> right. It's it's one of the wonderful things about the De Mysterious is it contains more descriptions of religious practice than mm-hmm. any other Platonist work, but any other work from antiquity altogether, almost. It's, it gives us so much to go on. I mean, not as much as we'd like, but so mm-hmm. much to go on. All these references to, you know, standing on the charakteres and um, oh yes, all this kind of stuff, all this kind of oogly-boogly private religion, kind of reminding us mm-hmm. of the magical papyri sort of stuff.
1: That's it. That does bring the magical papyrus back, the standing on characters, which of course they do in a PGM, yeah. so you can find the things where, where those things are I don't know papyrus things that you write on and stand on or throw into the river, gold, lamella, whatever it might be, There's, and that material substance enlivens or actualizes your mat- your magical right, hmm. and the applicant has to go out of his way and say, "No, they don't. <laughs> right? And he why you might be, might be too an advocate, but he thinks that that kind of thing is a private thing that isn't publicly done. It doesn't follow his theurgic tradition. Therefore, it's false. Right. He's arguing against standing on characters. Right. Being, because you're
0: just basically ignorant if you do that. Interesting. So he does have a a, a strong critique of what what. Might be called like superstition in religion, or 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 black magic, yeah, black magic stuff. Now, of course, for a Christian in this period, every form of ritual that isn't Christian is going to be considered something a little bit like black magic, potentially, depending on the Christian, obviously. And Um, and it's always going to have to do with evil demons, as we said. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) but um, not only is Yamblikus, not only does no one take seriously the idea that he's a black magician anymore right. um mm-hmm. the idea the old scholarly idea and not even that old but really quite recent that he is uh, either well an a- apologist for the irrational is one mm-hmm. classic one or a apologist for the miraculous for the oogly boogly for he's a kind of occultist right mm-hmm. um those interpretations are being called into serious doubt by a lot of scholars, including yourself. I mean, you've recently right. published an article where you say th- th- his theory of ritual is eminently rational in its late antique context. Uh, it's it's right. thought out. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you can talk about this this change in reception of Iambluchus, because it's something you've sort of been involved in, From because you started working on Iambluchus in the 80s, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've seen from that time, and even eminent scholar like like John Dylan, who's who's that is who's devoted a huge amount of his life to working on Yamblichus, is is would go as so far as to say he's a philosopher of the second tier. He's he's okay, but you know he's not that great. Called him a
1: third-rate philosopher. Okay, kids. third-rate <laughs> philosopher. There you go. Um,
0: what what do you see in this? in this change in, in thought. So reflect on the scholarship of Iamblichus. In other words. Yeah, it was
1: interesting because when when I came in, I wrote my dissertation in 1983. So mm-hmm. that's pretty much when I, so from about 80 to 83, I was working on it. And that's when I discovered Iamblichus. And he fascinated me in ways that nobody else ever did. It's just amazing the way he thought. Uh, what was happening then? There was a lot of negative press. When you read anything about him, if you went to the secondary literature, it was mainly, but not all, it was mainly um, he's magic, he's dangerous, he doesn't know what he's talking about, this kind of thing. And people go, I don't really want to do that. But you know, people like John Dillon were in the forefront of saying there's more here than meets the eye. We had him, uh, Andrew Smith had some stuff on the Amplicus and on Porphyry that helped clear the path um hans levy's work on the chaldean oracles all that was coming in so at that point we started thinking okay well if he is rational and he does seem to be making very rational philosophical arguments and he's making a lot of use of plato how does that fit into the scheme that's the way i started looking at it that is philosophy uh, that is platonic philosophy and as i was saying earlier what, what you find when you go back is there's ritual not ritual but magical stuff in plato he talks, where is that? Let me think really fast. I think it's the Phaedo, I think, where he has um, people who die and their lives were material lives. They still cling to, ma- have matter cling to their souls and they walk around graveyards. So he can wow. explain graveyard ghosts that way. So there's, there's that kind of understanding even in Plato himself. And when you get to the middle Platonists, there's even more of it as they bring the demons in and, uh, and other sorts of rites. So what I'm seeing is that he's not that irrational given the context. Mm. Given the context, he's actually more rational than some that have been writing. Right. And he's the one that went out of his way, especially in the day mysterious, to give us a testament to this is how rational people think about the, the non-rational
0: rather than the irrational is the way I look at it. Right. So that that's a very important point. The opposite of rational in this case is non-rational. It isn't irrational mm-hmm. because irrational implies... Uh, a negative value judgment something like that this is in the same way as the opposite of normal is non-normal it's not abnormal right (laughs) Right. because abnormal (laughs) implies a negative thing so he is giving a rational account of ritual united with a thoroughgoing metaphysics which you may or may not accept but you certainly can't just (laughs) say is, is nonsense it's certainly at least from the if you start from the perspective that Plato is the best place to look for metaphysics, we must find some metaphysics Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Um, His approach to this is as maybe as good as anyone else's arguably. Mm -hmm. Um, And he does something that no other surviving Platonist does, which, which is give a, a like almost a manual point by point account for Mm -hmm. how you can, deal with all these different aspects of ritual practice, which ones make sense, which ones don't, why this one works, why this one is just nonsense, all that sort of thing. Is that, would you say that's a decent yeah. summary?
1: That's a good summary. Nicely done. Thank you. And it's interesting that Porphyry gave him the chance to do that by taking on some sort of skeptical argument of his own.
0: And he said, I'm going to
1: town with this. And he wrote the De Mysteries.
0: Yeah. Isn't it interesting, though? That, and this is definitely getting into the realm of irresponsible speculation because okay. we, never know, we hardly ever know why a given text survives and another text gets lost. Yeah. You know, Why do all of Aristotle's really difficult esoteric works survive and none of his exoteric works for a, for a mass audience survive? But mm-hmm. why of all the works of Iambluchus that would survive does this one survive? Do you ever yeah. wonder about that? Like, why is his On the Soul not, you know, hardly extant? Which you would have thought would be... Especially when we think that all these works are being curated by East Roman Christian Scriptoria, right? Right. Who you would expect Mm -hmm. a priori to be like Iamblichus on the mysteries. Forget it. This stuff is forbidden. And, you know, if anyone's going to think this is evil magic and or irrational superstition, it's going to be them. But they're copying this book. But they're not... Maybe yeah. bothering to copy his on the soul, or his uh, Timaeus commentary, or his of his yeah, word commentaries, really. It is
1: interesting, and I have no answer to that, of course. And it's really just luck Line luck—what gets saved and what doesn't. Yeah, you know, a lot of it might have been in um, the, the Istanbul Museum uh, Library. That's what I'm looking for, library. Uh, And then 1204 got burned down by the Crusaders and we lost so much then. Just bad luck. Alexandria Library burned down. We lost stuff there. But, yeah, I don't know why things continued. But once we had them, right, in the Western tradition, then
0: we worked to keep them. (laughs) So we got lucky after the Renaissance. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely got lucky with the De Mysteries. Um, It's a fascinating text. Now, John... What have we not talked about that we should definitely talk about? Back to the
1: Symposium of Plato. In the Symposium of Plato, he has an argument that the gods never descend to us. And instead, uh, between human beings and the gods, they're daimones, demons, right. that travel back and forth and carry messages. And that almost seems like a throwaway myth that nobody was concerned about, but it became really important in the Platonic tradition. And that the fact that gods didn't descend means that Iamblichus has to set up a system where the gods stay where they are. They can't come down here, but you have to find a way to communicate with us. We're completely cut off, but not completely because they have the uh, divine illumination that's what we talked about earlier. And then that started playing into the whole Christian thing, right? All of a sudden, when God, the Christians say, Christ came to earth, it was like, no, he didn't. God can't do that. So the pagans had an elm forces of attack and they can say, we've got daimone, heroes that come down to earth, help us. Christ is like that. You're making, some, you're making something out of nothing. That became part of the tradition too. So I think the gods do not descend, in like critical to what came afterwards Mm. as part of theurgy. As you can see, that's why you
0: need theurgy. That is a really important point. Thank you for that. So it it is all about how do you bridge the distance between the the mundane Mm -hmm. and the the divine. Uh, Everyone's very concerned about this in late antiquity. And um Yambelcus...
1: are. when you look at Proclus, right? What he does is he makes the distance even greater. In a sense, there's more entities in between. And when you might think that's making us further from the gods, it's actually no. That makes more links. It makes it easier for us to get there. <laughs> sort yeah. of step by step by step.
0: All right. Well, John Finnamore, thank you very much for speaking to us about Ymbris's Theurgy in theory and practice, and stay esoteric. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Nice one.